This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Raslan, today, um, we have the return of, she is the head honcho at uh, Pusaka Industries, as I call them, cultural <laughs> heritage curators in Malaysia, um, Pauline Fan. Hello. How are you, Ken? Uh, I'm okay. I'm okay. And, uh, and he is a producer at uh, BFM, and uh, he's an ex-banker, he was telling us just now. He is Mikey Gong. Hi, Ken. Hi, Pauline. How are you? Hello. I am proud. Well, so kind of anyway. You didn't oh. sound it just now, but anyway. Um, so our three topics, we've got a really diverse range of topics today, which is, which is good. Uh, topic number one is the, the Harlem Renaissance. Topic number two is the 1980s when computers were fun. And finally, topic number three is dealing with death. So Pauline, first of all, the Harlem Renaissance. What's that? Yes, I was, um, I've been reading and actually I've been fascinated with the Harlem Renaissance for some time. Um, and I've just written an article about one of the writers of the Harlem Renaissance. Now the Harlem Renaissance, it didn't, well, it didn't just happen in Harlem actually, it happened across the, especially the Northern United States, um, but Harlem became the kind of um, real and also symbolic center of this cultural movement. Um, so Har Harlem being a district in, in New Harlem, York? In New York, yes, Upper Manhattan, Harlem, a neighborhood um, that is that has been actually associated with many of the of dynamic African American culture, and a, a lot of that actually started to flourish during the Harlem Renaissance. Um, the Harlem Renaissance was it was actually caused by several things, also economic factors, um, and also factors that so the end of the Civil War, of course, and then the Reconstruction period. Um, and when the South started to come under the Jim Crow laws, um, and also in conjunction with the, with the World War, which ended up, um, actually many of the cities in, Northern, in the North had a lack or um, had, they didn't have as much European labor coming in, the migrant labor. And so they had actually started opening up spaces for African-American workers. And so recruiters were actually luring a lot of the um, workers from the South. And so many millions actually of African-Americans started to move, migrate up north. And it was a period that was called the Great Migration. Um, that, that has also been captured in, in many different kinds of art forms, especially I think one of the most significant is Jacob Lawrence, his, um, his painting series of paintings called, I think it's called the Mi Migration Series. Um, so you had millions and millions of um, African-Americans at that time starting to, to move up north. And you also at the same time had um, a, an increase of, of literate African-Americans. And so education was starting to, um, to develop in that sector. But what this all led to was a flowering of artistic life and cultural life and intellectual life. And this was what was called the Harlem Renaissance. And so as you developed this, this kind of more educated class of, of African-Americans, they started to write about their own experience. And many of them started to, they also started to become uh, cultural producers in, in the arts, in, in music, of course, jazz and the blues was something they were already doing. And it started to flourish in the nightclubs of Harlem during that time. And so many of the jazz musicians that we, that we still remember, like Duke Ellington, um, Louis Armstrong, and people like that. Many of them were central figures of the Harlem Renaissance. The time when people like Paul Robeson and Josephine Baker started their careers. 
really dynamic period. Um, but it was particularly, I think, uh, it's very much associated with the, the literary um, developments that happened during that time were especially important. I think because of the debates that went on during that time. So you had people like Langston Hughes was a huge figure. Um, the young Langston Hughes who started to write um, about the black experience, but using things like jazz rhythms and the black vernacular to shape a kind of language that was not dominated by, by a white experience. And so one of the things that many of them were talking about and doing were, um, was to actually redefine what was blackness. But, but can I ask Pauline, uh, and I don't want to yes. bring in Mikey here, because Mikey actually is mm. a real jazz aficionado. Mm -hmm. He loves jazz. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. And I want to ask you first, though, Pauline, what is it about yes. you? What, what attracts you to this as a Malaysian? What, is, what do you find attractive about this, uh, this moment? I love these moments of cultural um, kind of chaos and searching and ferment and, and flourishing. Um, I think, and I think that period, not just in America, but in other parts of the world during that time, this kind of end of the First World War, it happened um, also in other parts of the world. Um, for example, in the May 4th movement in China, which was more intellectual um, and literary, I think, um, not as musical perhaps, but those were moments of intense debate, uh, um, artistically, creatively, and also intellectually. And I think um, that kind of seeking to redefine culture on their own terms, for me, that's really a fascinating thing. And, and the Harlem Renaissance, to me, has been one of those great moments of, um, of not just American history, but, but global history and mm. culturally. M Mikey? Yeah, I'm particularly interested in this uh, era because this is, uh, as, a, as someone whose ancestors came over from China, there's oh. this migrational shift from the South to the North. Oh, and one, one particular question I actually have to ask with regards to that is, mm. why did they choose Harlem in particular? If I'm not mistaken, it was a pretty upper middle class white neighborhood at, at the time. Why did they choose to settle in Harlem? I think it started to shift actually. So, um... I mean, I'd have to actually read a history of Harlem, but I, I think the neighborhoods were not so defined yet, you know, as, as they are now. Um, and at that time, many of the, the demographics were actually shifting. Um, and so they did end up to be around Harlem. Many of the ones who went up north, the, the um, black community who went up north were, so they were, they were like educational centers in Washington and things like that. But, mm. but in Harlem, there wasn't a university, you know, there wasn't yet a university-like um, that had a kind of black um, center to it. Um, if, 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 sorry, mm -hmm. if, if I can uh, draw a parallel with a, a different neighborhood yeah. in, that yeah. I know about in London, uh, the Notting Hill yes. area. Yes, right. Which, which became in the 1950s uh, a magnet oh. for people migrating in from the Caribbean. And, yeah. and one of the reasons why that area became accessible is because one, it was, uh, it was already quite poor housing and it, mm. it had emptied up, but also actually mm -hmm. historically that area had been very popular throughout the 19th mm. century as a place where uh, civil servants from the empire would go to retire and, and they would retire there with mm -hmm. their funny Asian stroke Caribbean ways, like eating curry and things like that. And and they would also invite people back from India to come and come and live with them. So it was it was an area that already had a sort of um, right uh, con connection yeah. with brown people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and then mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then everybody went there. Um, so I don't know. Maybe Harlem had the same thing. Right. Because with with Harlem, um, it's famous 
but one of those famous hotspots was the Cotton Club. Um, yes. Where the likes of yeah. Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, and all the people that, that yes. you know. Mm-hmm. And, but it was yeah. a strange Louis place because, oh, yeah. because the audience, it, there was a color bar and the audience was mm. white. So the performers yes. were black and the yes. others were Italian, I think. And the audience yeah. were, were white. <laughs> In fact, I think, I think um, before the African-American population started to dominate Harlem, I think it was probably dominated by Italians yeah. and, and Jewish um, yeah. population. And so it was also probably naturally a place of migrants. Uh, but you're right, Pam, that was, and that the Cotton Club and places like that, I think started to develop um, when, because the Harlem Renaissance became interesting, not only to the black population, but also mm. to the way it became trendy. And it became like Harlem became this, this the place to be, the kind of center of excitement, not just for, for the black population, but it started to actually draw in the white population as well. Mm. Yes, uh, I had an, an, I read an interesting story that the prohibition of the 1920s mm. was actually instrumental in enabling whites and blacks to actually mix around together because the whites would go to the black establishments to uh, solicit and illicit alcohol and at the same time listen to the music and invite the culture. Well, is that true, Pauline? That's, yeah, that's, that's what I read as well. Um, and there were, just in the literary movement, I'm sure in other, in other parts of the, of the Harlem Renaissance, there were actually many um, white writers and editors who were interested in black culture and interested in black writing and actually helped um, and were sort of friends of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, but what I find fascinating about this period, especially among the writers, was that I mean, they didn't all agree with each other. None, it was never mm-hmm. a unified movement of which had a manifesto. I mean, perhaps the only thing that they kind of agreed on was that they needed to speak from their own experience. But how that happened and how the aesthetic of how and the, um, the, the ways in which they did that, many of them actually disagreed and sometimes very sharply and quite, um, quite aggressively disagreed with each other. Well, uh, we're good. we must move on, though. But at the mm. very end of this show, we're going to play mm-hmm. out with a piece of music that yes. uh, Pauline has chosen for us, which uh, which came from that time and from that yes, place. Yes, absolutely. So uh, we move on, though. Uh, this is a very diverse show, which is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> we move from Indeed. the Harlem Renaissance. We move to the 1980s when computers were fun, Mikey. Right. Okay. Um, I was just thinking, it is time of COVID when all of us are basically had a computer has become an essential item that we can't live without. We work with it, we study with it, and we need it from uh, you know, morning to end to end to night. In a way, I feel it's become a chain around our necks, something that we can't actually do without. And it's not something we actually love either. Now, I want to bring us back to a time when I was growing up in the 80s, when computers were fun. They were novel, they were new toys. And... Before, uh, before anyone gets insulted, they really were toys. You saw it on TV, you wanted one for Christmas or whatever religious festival you celebrated, but you didn't know what they were used for. You just knew they were cool. And the last thing you wanted them was for boring spreadsheets or, you know, and, and, or, and or, or, keep, or, or keeping data. So I'm going to drop you some names from that past. And Pauline, Cam, I just want to know, whether you can, and these names sound familiar to you. Uh, the Commodore, the Spectrum, the Auric. Do these names mean anything to you from that era? Um, I think I saw what the Spectrum some... too. 
Well, it wasn't as good as the first one, apparently. No, <laughs> no, no, it, it wasn't. But the reason why I said it was cute was they, they, they had a certain aesthetic about it. Each computer uh, looked different from the same old boring grays and the white that you get, or black that you get these days. You know, hmm. for, for color. Were they, they colorful? Had, they were colorful. They were pretty, oh, <laughs> for one really? of a better phrase, Pauline, yeah. Um, they were... They were inefficient. You couldn't use the programs on one computer on another like you could now. Computers now are generic and in a sense, whereas back then they were diverse and they introduced uh, a sense of uh, wonderment and amazement when you actually played with it. Mm. And I mean, uh, and of course, this was uh, a time before the internet when, uh, when, again, computers were just basically toys, but evolving to something larger. But, but Mikey, I'm assuming yeah, you, you had really one. Did you, did you have one of these computers back in the 90s, one of these early computers? Did you have one? Yes, I did. Um, I wanted a Commodore 64, mainly to play games. I knew exactly what I, what I wanted it for, but there was an element of, um, of serendipity as well. And, and when I got it, I knew it could play games, but what else could it do? And this fascinating journey into the unknown and actually un- unpacking it. And what else could it, it do? It could do rudimentary word processing, which mm. I really didn't use and uh, you know, yeah, use it for. It was mainly to play games and just basically experiment. There's some little bit of basic programming on there. Now, would you believe this? Uh, how and in terms of loading the programs, you had to use a guess it. Floppy a disk. tape recorder. Oh no! This huh? is a tape recorder. <laughs> you load up programs on a computer using a tape recorder. Really? And yeah, <laughs> and you know, God forbid, the tape should just stop halfway through. You'd have to rewind it all over again, and um, restart it. Can, can I can I ask Pauline? Did Pauline, you... you're too young. You probably don't remember what tape recorders. <laughs> I know tape recorders, but I never knew you could use it with a computer. Wow. Did Did you have any experience with um, not early computers? Those I mean, it sounds wonderful. It sounds fantastic. It sounds like sounds... Uh, it sounds like music bands. <laughs> to Pauline, but... it probably sounds like it came from the Cretaceous period or something like that. <laughs> no, no, it sounds fascinating, but. Yeah. yeah, I had an old computer, but I think it was like an IBM or something. It wasn't uh, yet. It wasn't that sexy and old. You know? Yeah, was, yeah. It was still yeah. Yeah, probably towards the eight, late eighties. But what, one of the things I respond to with what Mikey is saying is that uh, it was something that you know people wanted to have, but you had no idea what to do with it. And I, <laughs> and so I was, I was when I first saw them, I was drawn to them, like much like you know the apes at the beginning of two thousand and one. And then, I'd, and I'd sort of touch it and sniff it. And then, and then I said, like, what do I do now? And it's like, absolutely nothing. Mm. There was nothing I could right. do with it. Um, and, uh, but I, one co- community of friends of mine who, who did find uses for it were, were one, people who were into games, but also people who were into music. Um, mm. They were able to, I don't know, with soldering irons or programming or whatever, they were able to make f- funny sounds with these computers. And and record mm. music and mm-hmm. produce music and 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 mm. create music without having the skill to be able to say play a guitar or the piano. Mm. Yeah, right. Um, it was yeah. very democratizing like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, that's an interesting point, Cam. Because in the early days of computing, sound was rudimentary to say the least. You had a little beep, a little boop, and that's about really all you could do with it. Uh, you certainly couldn't and, you know, compose uh, Beethoven's fifth on it. But 
over time, the technology evolved. And as you said, people sort of uh, played around with, with the system and it became a defining adjunct to, uh, to helping you create music and to search for new avenues and, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, Pauline, what was your first computer and what did you use it for? I think it was probably my mother's computer or something. She had one in the bedroom and um, I think she used it just for some work stuff. I mean, th those were like the days of the floppy disks and things, right? So mm. she had some work things on that. Um, but then my sister and I, there was a game I remember that we used to like. It was really simple in terms of its technology, but it was this kind of detective game called Scoop that was in Southern London. And you were, a you were a journalist who was investigating a murder. And your job was to go around and just interview all these characters who you met. And, but it was really rudimentary in terms of the graphics and, the, and even what, how you could move the character and all of that, but really enjoyable. But and it was so the gameplay, right? It was the, it, mm. it, it was the sense of yeah. Uh, like, yeah, yeah, I really mm. enjoyed that. And yeah. so Mikey, what, what was your first computer and what did you use it for? Well, my, my first computer was a Commodore 64, and I used to play this game called. I'm gonna. I'm almost embarrassed to say this on air. It was a it was a karate kung fu game called The Way of the Exploding Fist. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> the name says it all, right? Uh, the, the interesting thing about it was that um, we talk about very graphic violence on in today's games. Those games of of you all didn't have that element because they didn't have the capacity to create realistic graphics. You see these two little blocks going pow, 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 beep, 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 and that's it. You that's know, good enough. Um, <laughs> that's good enough for you. You, you won when the, the, the other block fell on the ground. <laughs> yeah, but somehow those, I think that allowed our own imaginations mm, to, exactly. to, to flourish, right? Yeah. Mm. Creativity. Yeah. Um, well, well, well my, my first computer was a really cute little Asus. Mm, yes. um, it couldn't connect to anything. It was a, essentially a glorified <laughs> um, word processor, typewriter. Really. Okay. <laughs> um, it was fantastic, beautifully designed. And, mm. uh, and I, I played some really good games of solitaire on that. Um, oh. Yeah. Yeah, I've spent a, I spent a lot of time really honing my skills in solitaire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, Mikey once again has taken us a on a trip down memory lane. It's something that he uh, seems to specialize in here. Comes <laughs> with age, comes <laughs> being old. Okay. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, we're going to go even one step further than uh, Mikey Gong. Uh, when in a short while we're going to be talking about death and how to deal with it here on a bit of culture BFM eighty nine point nine. And we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, uh, Mikey Gong, and Pauline Fun. And now, topic number three is dealing with death. Because um, at A Bit of Culture, we don't shy away from the big issues. And the biggest uh, life issue, and I think even cultural issue, is, is death, really. And, and how we as individuals and how we as communities, as cultures, d deal with it. It's, um, it's obviously been around since the beginning of time. <laughs> And it'll continue to be. And yet it still remains something that's very hard to understand. I personally have just uh, very recently um, experienced the death of a, a very close person. And uh, it's, it's a very strange time because I think that we, you know, we, we, we understand reality in sort of a linear style. Things carry on. Then suddenly there's existence and then there's not existence. There's absence. 
and there's no future possibility of existence. And I think it's very hard for us to calculate and compute that. And so perhaps if we cherry pick from looking at cultures around the world, see if we can understand if there are common denominators and how to deal with it. Because you would have thought after millions of years of uh, human evolution, we would have had it down by now. <laughs> we could just sort of press a button and be like, okay, let's dealt with it. Uh, mm. And yet it's not. Um, so I, I, I mean, we've all, we undoubtedly, we must have all experienced death and had different reactions, perhaps reactions mm. that surprised us. And uh, different mechanisms. And I'm just wondering if, um, if perhaps your personal, but also, as I say, cultural practices that, that help uh, explain what we as humans try to achieve in dealing mm. with it. Mm. I mean, Pauline, you, you, um, you, you look at cultural practices, uh, traditional right. cultural practices. Uh, I know that the healing, for instance, is a, okay. is a big concern. And then yeah. there's death what have you come across in i would say in the communities i work with in Kelantan, um yeah i think it's of course in death is so much a part of um of life and of course it's the way that you look at death as as whether you embrace it as part of that experience or you try to maybe um look away from it during in your experience of life. And so I think in some of the, I, this is not a generalization, but in some of the traditional communities that that do practice forms of healing, I do think that death is, um, is embraced in a sense, not that, as something that, an eventuality. And so because you understand there is a, there's a deeper understanding that the human being is fragile and, and the human being is not there to to be a kind of, um, to just go out there and, and conquer the universe or the world, but also to be, to know yourself and to be, and to know your community. And many, many of the underlying philosophical um, um, thoughts that of traditional arts in Kelantan are all about the self and dealing with yourself. And so by the time, um, hopefully by the time you reach the end of your life, you've reached a kind of place within yourself that is um, that allows you to go in some kind of peace. And I think that's mostly, and I, I'm sure that is something that many cultures and many individuals think that at least if you, by the end of your life, if you're in a state of, um, of peace, or at least maybe that's not achievable, but at least you have a way of um, passing on or going to the next world without too much um, torment. Mm. Mikey, do yeah. you have any? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the author, as the Kubler Ross, talks about this and uh, this uh, and concept where in the past we used to be confronted with the reality of death and we embraced it, whereas in modern times we've tended to try and deny it, and as a result, that has actually taken away the cathartic experience of dealing with death in a way that would be, uh, to use Pauline's phrase, healing mm. for the soul and for, and for the person. A good example, uh, and she relates this anecdote about how, when she was growing up, a, a body uh, was brought to the family home and people wailed and cried mm. and mourned. Now that's actually been taken away from us in the modern, modern days. We have funeral homes. We don't have graveyards 
in church grounds anymore. The separation of life and death is physical as well as, as well as, men, as mental. So when death actually hits us, it hits us pretty hard because we have no cultural, historical uh, starting point to deal with it and just kind of appears. I see where you're coming from. I will question it slightly. So for instance, in, in my family, my Malay family, hmm. um, I, I, I grew up overseas and so I came back into it at a fairly late stage. Hmm. And so a lot of the practices, which are normal to me, would often appear a bit shocking. And one is that when hmm. death comes in the Malay world, you know, the, the, the body hmm. is buried that day. And the amount of times hmm. there are family members children, et cetera, who are still flying in uh, and unable to get there. It, I used to feel that that was unfair to people who wanted to be part of that process. But, but as time goes by, mm. I've, I'm actually becoming a lot more reconciled to that speed, which probably, probably had uh, very important um, uh, health reasons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here we are in the yeah. tropics. Uh, it's exactly. Pretty, yeah. And, but actually that speed in a way, I mean, you know, you, 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 you face death head on the family, the men or women, depending on who has died are involved in the washing of the body. Mm -hmm. um, and then you don't do this. I don't want to use, I don't want to say wallowing, you know, but this, this sort of dwell dwelling extended yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, period. And, and, um, and I've now become very uh, reconciled to it and, and, and I kind of appreciate it actually. Mm. I mean, you know, later mm -hmm. dates, there will be prayers, et cetera, at prescribed times for yes. you to, mm -hmm. to revisit that person and that moment, mm -hmm. but not to be stuck in it forever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But, but, yeah. but that, um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I think that, that the swiftness with which mm. the, the death rites are done and the bodies are buried, I think because people do mourn in their own way mm. in any case. It's not that um, once those rites are done, we stop mourning, but perhaps it does help us to also get back to our own lives and maybe, and mourning maybe uh, on, in, within ourselves and, and it, not, yeah, like not dwelling on, on, the, on the death to an extent that it prevents us from getting on with our own lives. And, and because it can be, I mean, I remember, yeah, when I lost my father about 10 years ago and yeah, it was the most difficult time of my life ever. It was the most difficult thing I've ever had to deal with. Um, and also because my, my father passed away very, very young. He was only 68. Um, and of course, and as much as you are prepared because there was an illness, it really is something that you just, it's but when, so difficult to deal but with. But when, when it did happen, did you, did you, mm. Onto cultural practices, or, or were you left to I'm, negotiate in your own modern style? A bit of both, yeah. So, I mean, my dad was free thinker, and so my mother is a Catholic, and and we were all in in Bangkok, or at least they were in Bangkok, and I was flying back actually, Cam from from Oxford. I was in the middle of doing my master's degree. I def I flew back, and. And there was, my mother did want those rights. So there was a Catholic rights, but also because my, my father was a, was a free thinker, we also did, after the mm -hmm. Catholic rights, we also did rights at a Buddhist Wat, at a Thai Buddhist Wat, and, and he was cremated. 
and mm. and that was interesting because I think it, that was exactly what my father would have wanted. I think um, he would have liked to be have his ashes scattered and all. But all of that, yeah, I think those rituals, it was important for us, and I I do appreciate that we had some rituals to to be part of. Even I think it also helps take away and also um, share the grief. Um, and by the act of doing something and by the act of, of enacting those rights, I, I do find it helpful. Mm. Mikey? Um, yeah. I may not be totally correct on this, but I think in mm. a lot of countries where there's a strong Confucian culture, like China, mm. Vietnam, or Taiwan, there's an element of uh, lengthening the, 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 the process of mourning and the connection with the deceased. Um, and again, I'm not an expert in this, but I, th I believe there are like a 100 day rituals, 40 day rituals, something like that anyway. Uh, okay. So it's not a case of the person is dead, uh, let's bury him or her and, and, and move on. There's this lingering sense of uh, heaviness over the whole thing, which you do not push away to the side. Mm. Mm. Which I think tends to happen a little bit more in, you know, you know, in in, in a modern era. Mm. Well, uh, we must move on. But thank, thanks for that. Actually, it helps me sort of like you know think about where I stand. I just uh, finish off though with saying that so many of the the monuments that have actually uh, remained with us over time were actually dedicated to the dead. Uh, yeah. mm. Stonehenge is a, is an enormous. Mm. Um, yeah. uh, the, just the rocks in Stonehenge is one small part of this enormous complex dedicated to remembering the dead. And it yeah. was built around the same time as the pyramids, which are dedicated yeah. to <laughs> the dead. Um, yeah. and, and so it's something we've never gotten over. And, and I've been trying to find it. There's this book. So uh, one of the very first, in, in archaeology, one of the very first urban centers that, that have ever been found, I think it was, it's in uh, southeastern Turkey, maybe in Syria. Uh, it was like, it's about 15,000 years old. It's like really old. And, and they found in the floor of the sort of dwellings, um, uh, skulls embedded in the floor. Because presumably the practice then was to remember people by having the skull of the dead there so that you always had that uh, memento. So you know, we, we've, ne we've always had issue dealing with this and we've never found the perfect solution for Paul perhaps we have. Mm. Um, but anyway, we move on now to something completely different because this is the diverse show and uh, we're going to now do recommendations and, uh, and uh, Pauline goes first. Okay. Um, I am going to recommend the work of a writer from the Harlem Renaissance who, who I've, um, I've always found her very fascinating. Her name is Zora Neale Hurston. And um, she, was, she was a fiction writer as well as a folklorist and an anthropologist. And I first read her when I was doing my undergraduate studies in New York um, as a writer of the Harlem Renaissance. But, and we read her, her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. That was, that's her most famous novel. This was written in like the, the 1930s, I believe. Um, but she, what I find really fascinating about her is also that she did this incredible work on folklore um, Southern folklore. She was from the South. She was born in Alabama, grew up in Florida at a time of Jim Crow. And so fascinating woman, highly recommend. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Um, it's funny, we all 
would be uh, drawn in our own ways to different parts of the Harlem Rena uh, Renaissance because you know you uh, mm -hmm. Pauline very much drawn to the, the writers for me the instinct is to think of the musicians mm -hmm. but there were performers actors yeah. uh, mm. poets, yes. so there was something for everyone journalists something visual arts yes yeah yeah mm -hmm. and uh, perhaps not necessarily the Harlem Renaissance but part of the black great migration that is perhaps yeah. most enduring in people's lives is say to Chicago where yes where where blues really came about which really influenced yeah. these young guys in Britain to create the mm. Rolling Stones and right Jeff exactly Beck and so exactly. it yeah. really lived on there yeah um so uh uh sorry who, who is that again by the way Pauline Zora Neale Hurston yeah okay. um yes okay uh, go look uh, her up Okay, uh, Mikey, what's your recommendation? Uh, I'm going to recommend something that's completely left of center. <laughs> um, I'm going to recommend carbohydrates from a different culture. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, do it, do it. Uh, okay, the, the premise, and my premise is this, is that this is going to be a tough year. I'm sorry, that's my, that's my Susing and a stance for 2021. And what's going to make you happy is carbohydrates. But just don't stick to carbohydrates from your own culture um, and take it from somewhere else that you've got that is that will introduce you to new vistas of of taste and imagination for me it's koshari an egyptian dish oh. it's a it's a mixture oh. of rice uh macaroni lentils smothered in a rich tomato base sauce and sprinkled with lovely fried shallots Oh my goodness. I can't think of a bigger card bomb than that. And I can't think of a better addition <laughs> to a culture that is quite foreign to, to mine anyway. And it compels me to actually learn more about the people and, um, you know, and, 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 and the country and the history through its food. Do you That's cook it. it yourself? I can't. I, I would love to cook it and I'm going to try it one day. But so far, I've just stopped eating it at... at Egyptian restaurants, which I find a few between in KL, but mm -mm. oh gosh, it's uh, um, I'm, I'm just salivating just thinking about it now. I know it's, it's a really odd dish, three carbohydrates. I mean, why don't you just throw some potatoes in it? What's it called again? Koshari. Koshari. I'm probably mispronouncing it badly, so apologies to any Egyptians out there. That, that is mm. fantastic. I think it's one of the best uh, setups for a recommendation ever on a bit of culture, which is. <laughs> Carbohydrates. Outside. Carbohydrates from another culture. I love that. <laughs> it's a new show, Cam. <laughs> Let's do it. Well, pretty niche leader uh, uh, listenership. It's just about you, really, my kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, 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 we'll see if we can fine-tune it. And um... yeah. Okay, so that's Kashari, um, which I guess if you Google uh, Egyptian, specifically Egyptian, it's not just uh, Middle Eastern, or it's, it's an Egyptian dish, is it, Mikey? It's an Egyptian dish associated. Right. Okay. It's so, like, uh, whereas Fool has been, mm, sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah, go check out your favorite Egyptian um, restaurant. <laughs> we all have one. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. say, uh, waiter, Kushari, for one. Um, so, I'm uh, going to look. <laughs> okay, that's cool. Uh, so my recommendation is, uh, it's a bit uh, left field as well. It's been, it's been a difficult time for me. And, I don't know how to be. So actually, when, when, when bad things happen, I do find myself drawn to, it's very strange. I find myself watching old episodes of Friends. Um, ah. I, it's, 
Am I so? Am I am I recommending Friends? It's it's the one kind of cultural input I've had this week, and I don't know. I just feel I feel like the you, you mentioned Mikey the the carbohydrate kind of uh, sympathy thing. Mm. Perhaps Friends is the carbohydrates of uh, <laughs> of entertainment. Um, very comfort food, and you know, over years, I personally and many others. Uh, have built up a relationship with these things and, and so it's so nice to be to go and things i've seen so many times it's like oh typical mm-hmm. ross <laughs> and so perhaps this, character yeah perhaps this is more actually a, a um a, a lead-off point for a topic than a recommendation because i mean i guess we all yeah. have our own friends uh we do version yeah something that yeah, we sure. we um we go to so i don't know it's not really a recommendation mm-hmm. as such it's just what i've been doing is uh yeah, sort of uh, comfort food, carbohydrates um, for the uh, eyeballs, and that's um, mm. Friends. I think I, mm. I personally think it's the best sitcom of all time. Do you, do you have a version of uh, Friends <laughs> yourselves? You two, do you have something that you return, you go, you turn to? I mean, obviously you stuff your face, Mikey, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, ouch! <laughs> any, anything else? Anything else? In time, when in times of crisis, that you just turn to. I like Friends, actually. <laughs> I actually yeah. watched the sitcom. So I totally identify, I agree with you, Ken, but I haven't actually been going back through and uh, into it so much this time. I have no idea. I tend to, I'm escaping more into science fiction, which I think I'll save for another okay. topic some other time. Um, Polly, my do you, escapism. Do you I, tend to, I tend to listen to music and mm. I tend to listen to, and I do tend to go back to things that I feel comfortable with. So sometimes, Sometimes I start listening, you know, to, to the early Suede albums, which, which, I, which was some of my, like, my soundtrack of certain years of my youth. Wow. Um, I go back to that sometimes. And that just, it does give me a sense of, yeah, comfort, familiarity, mm. and also brings you back to a time when you were discovering yourself. Yeah, I do have wow. that, with music my, mostly. Yeah, Mikey, she is really young. Suede. Yeah, you know, yeah, I know. I was just going. Uh, our okay. suede is like the Bay City Rollers or something. So. I was going to. I was going to say my comfort music is Miles Davis and Coltrane, and then she comes up with suede. Um, I love. Quiet. I love Miles Davis and Coltrane as well. But yeah, oh, but that was like you know, my teenage years. You know, you go back to. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna uh, finish off now. We're gonna um, we're gonna play out with a piece of music uh, on our way out, and uh, Pauline has chosen it uh, because it's it's from the time of the Harlem Renaissance. And uh, Pauline, what yes. is it? Um, it's Duke Ellington, um, and there were many great musicians who started mm. to to flourish at that time, and, and and Duke Ellington was one of them. There's also like, yeah, Fats Waller and uh, Louis Armstrong, so many of them, and and I think this was actually before the 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 big band jazz kind mm. of took over, you know? So this yeah. was really still very much black jazz. Um, and it captures a moment of, um, yeah, of musical history. And again, in musical terms, the Harlem Renaissance has had a huge impact on, on the world. And like you said, Cam, you know, the, um, even the influence then later on, on British music and European music and all of that, and, and now even Asian music, the, the way that jazz has flourished in, in Asia as well. Mm. Um, but that moment, I think, is really fascinating. And, and this, um, this song, I think, captures some of that vibrancy. Okay. And so that'll bring us to the end of uh, this week's show. And only remains me now to thank uh, Pauline Fan. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Mikey Gong. Thank you. 
Well, thank you both very much. Um, and for myself also, Cam Russell. And uh, please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.